0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday the 13th of May 2022, some almost 100 years ago. Uh, Sigmund Freud wrote an interesting and important book. Uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, a book about this perennial struggle between the individual and society. Some 90 years later, we have another book with a similar title by a similarly significant, very visible public intellectual, Francis Fukuyama, Liberalism and Its Discontents. And in an odd way, the books are I'm guessing quite similar. Uh, Both are about this perennial conflict, confrontation um, and unease between the individual and society, between the individual and the collective. Francis Fukuyama, uh, his book Liberalism and its Discontents is just out this week. He's joining us from Palo Alto, just down the road uh, from where I'm in San Francisco. Uh, Frank, welcome to Keen On. Um, This new book, uh, Liberalism and Its Discontents, sometimes publishers come up with titles, but I know authors are often involved as well. Uh, Is there reference to the the Freud book in in your book? Uh,
1: Yeah, I think that I was, uh, I had Freud's book in the back of my mind because liberalism, like Freud's society, is a big uh, structure that hangs over us. And People are unhappy with it in many ways. And so I think the situation, uh, you know, is, um, uh, is a bit comparable. Freud wrote that book, you know, at the turn of the 20th century when the world was changing very dramatically. And I think we're in a similar period of change right now. You, um, you
0: Your book, uh, Liberalism and Its Discontents, does focus on the contemporary age. Lots of analysts have compared the current struggle of liberalism and democracy with the late 20s and and 30s. Where do you stand, Frank, on that one? Are we returning to history?
1: Well, I uh, think that the situation right now is not as serious as the 1930s. In the 1930s, you had uh, communism and fascism as two rival, very, very uh, authoritarian ideologies that challenged liberalism that took over, you know, some very large uh, countries. Uh, Today, you know, you have a similar challenge from Russia and China, which are authoritarian and uh, great powers, but the ideologies that they espouse are really not uh, as well defined, uh, other than the fact that they don't like Western uh, liberalism. Uh, And so, you know, there's a degree of that same ideological struggle. I would say that Uh, I'm a little bit more worried about the United States itself because in those earlier periods, uh, the U.S., I think, was uh, more unified and had a greater sense of itself as a nation uh, than we do today, where I think polarization has really, uh, in many ways, weakened our sense of uh, national unity and what it is we stand for. You
0: seem to have a rash of books, Frank, on the current health of liberalism. Uh, one headline from Foreign Policy suggested in a, in a review of your book and Yasha Monk's new book, Yasha, was on the show last week. Liberalism isn't dead, but it's very sick. My reading of your book is that you don't think liberalism is very sick. It might not be in tip-top condition, but would you describe it as being very sick? And, 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 and also in that context, perhaps you might define what you mean by liberalism
1: sure well let's start actually with the definition because that might clarify things Uh, i don't use liberalism in the american sense of you know left of center progressive politics because i think actually uh progressives in the u.s have become illiberal in in many respects and in europe it it refers to center-right you know pro-market parties sometimes it's used to refer to libertarianism which is a doctrine popular among some in the United States. It's basically against the government in, you know, all of its manifestations. Those are not my definition. Uh, for me, liberalism uh, is a doctrine that sees the moral uh, equality of all people as individuals. It's a universalist doctrine in that sense that says that, uh, you know, people's ability to choose is something that unites them as human beings. And it's associated with a number of institutions that protect that uh, autonomy, such as a rule of law that prevents uh, rulers from doing whatever they want, you know, constitutional checks and balances that similarly limit the power of government uh, over individuals. Uh, And it's really been around for quite a long time. It got its start in the middle of the 17th century after 150 years of religious war in Europe where people were killing each other over whether they're a Protestant or Catholic or some particular sect within those uh, branches. And people felt, you know, maybe we should not fight over religion, but agree to disagree and lower the temperature of politics, have a society that is based on tolerance of different viewpoints. And I think that's really my understanding of liberalism. And, uh, you know, what's and, and it's something I think that remains valuable today. Uh, I think the the question of how much trouble it's in uh, is a serious one because it's been attacked from both the uh, the right and the left. You know the the attack on the right, I suppose the the main avatar of that is Vladimir Putin, who declared that liberalism was obsolete in an interview in two thousand and nineteen. and he's trying to prove his point by invading a much more liberal uh, society, Ukraine. Uh, as we speak but you know apart from putin there are a lot of conservative populists nationalists that say liberalism is too weak it's uh, lets people do whatever they want uh, and we need more national unity and a sense of national identity uh, and then i think on the left you have a lot of people that especially gen z types that feel liberalism is slow it's outmoded it doesn't really get us to the kind of social justice that uh, is really necessary, and for that reason, uh, it needs to be discarded in favor of something else.
0: To what extent, though, is if not the crisis the ill health of liberalism, uh, the same as the ill health of democracy? These two different, two different things. Uh, uh, Viktor Orbán, of course, of Hungary, who he may not be as authoritarian as as, as Putin. But he describes himself as an illiberal democrat. Can you be an illiberal democrat, Frank, or are those contradictory oh, sure.
1: terms? No, no, sure. I mean, liberalism and democracy have been allies for you know for um, many decades, but they're not the same thing. Liberalism really refers to the rule of law and constraints on power. Democracy refers to popular choice through elections, and so. Uh, Viktor Orban was popularly elected. He just actually won another uh, term as prime minister by a pretty successful uh, margin. Uh, but, you know, he's closing down media, he's uh, blocking uh, judges and stacking courts and basically trying to eliminate all of the liberal constraints on his power. And conversely, you can have a liberal autocracy. Uh, Singapore is not really democratic. You know, they hold elections, but those elections are pretty much rigged in favor of the ruling uh, party, the PAP. But, you know, they have a rule of law, and there's quite a lot of individual freedom uh, in Singapore. So you can have one without the other. I think in the end, uh, they, they kind of need to go together because uh, if you have an illiberal democracy where rulers can do whatever they want, you know after they've dismantled the liberal institutions then they go after the democratic ones by gerrymandering and blocking access to the vote and and that sort of thing so you know there's a reason why the two are closely associated so your your focus
0: in liberalism and its discontents is less on political institutions less on democratic institutions and more on the the idea of liberalism in this book you're a you're an intellectual historian. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, we've been arguing about policies, you know, more or less immigration, you know, tax rates, all this stuff. But in the end, uh, you know, there's a battle of ideas and values. And I think that not enough people have been standing up and trying to explain why liberalism is a valuable thing and why it needs to be Uh, defended, you know, if necessary, with blood and treasure. And so I do think the uh, explication of the underlying ideas is very important.
0: So would you define yourself as a liberal, uh, as opposed to a classical conservative, you begin your book with a chapter on classical liberalism, but in your definition, it's not that different from a classical conservative,
1: is it? Uh, it depends on the context. Uh, you know, in the 19th century, the liberals were the leading edge of progressive thought, and the real conservatives were, you know, landowners that wanted to preserve an, you know, an old social order against the encroachments of uh, capitalism. I think that today, uh, in progressive America, that kind of liberal would be regarded as a uh, conservative. But, you know, conservatives these days especially, are unhappy with liberalism. You know, they they don't want people to be allowed to make their own choices. They really want, uh, you know, either a national unity under a certain um, more rigid understanding of who is a citizen and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, or they, you know, hearken back to a time when they believe that religion defined uh, what the nation was and that people really ought to be on board with a, you know, with a, a, a common uh, set of moral values, and they don't like liberals because they don't do that. So, you know, in that respect, I think um, it's not the same as conservatism, particularly as conservatism has been evolving before our eyes.
0: Uh, you mentioned in your book, uh, a conservative Rod Dreher, he was actually on the show, Live Not by Lies is his latest New York Times bestseller. My reading of Dreher is he seems to Replace replace the right of the individual with some sort of, if not religious fundamentalist, some sort of essential religious truth at the heart of society. Is, is that what you mean by Dreyer and his kind of conservatism that you describe in your book?
1: Yeah, there's a growing number of conservative intellectuals that have been trying to outline what a conservative alternative to liberalism is. Uh, Dreyer has got one uh, version of it where. You know, he really wishes to put society back on a common uh, moral uh, uh, understanding of the good that that is defined by a particular interpretation uh, of religion. Now, he um, you know has different solutions to this. Uh, you know, he's uh, uh, he likes the Benedict, what he calls the Benedict option, where uh, religious conservatives withdraw into their own communities and. Uh, detach from the rest of liberal society i actually think that this is a liberal solution because that's what liberalism allows you to do you know it's not forcing you to go one way or another uh, but you know you can i mean if you're you know you're a mormon or a mennonite or an orthodox jew you can live in your separate communities and nobody's going to bother you Uh, what i think is a little bit more disturbing is that some Uh, conservatives like Adrian Vermeule the Harvard Law Professor are arguing in favor not of withdrawing from liberal society but actually trying to seize the commanding heights and using the power of government to enforce uh, a particular view of the common good Uh, and this I think is you know in a way it's a classical European kind of conservatism Uh, you know a lot of American conservatives have started Uh, admiring Salazar, you know, the late dictator of Portugal before Mm -hmm. Portugal opened up in the 1970s. And this just seems to me completely bizarre and very un-American because, you know, the United States has never been this kind of theocracy and I, you know, hope will never be.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree on that theocratic element. When I talk to Drea, he seemed particularly un-American, although I think he claims to be more American than any other American. Um, I, I wonder... Frank, you're suggesting that the idea of liberalism is in a minority at the moment, but is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, in perhaps the greatest book of all on liberalism, Mill's work in the 19th century suggested that by definition, liberals should be in a minority um, and that they've always been very suspicious of mass opinion. So if everybody believed in liberalism, liberalism, liberals might actually be in trouble.
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by believe in liberalism. Uh, liberalism is not like Marxism-Leninism, where there's a clear doctrine and people have to sign up and join the communist party to show that they 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 have signed on. Uh, it's you know it's a way of life and it's a it's a moral attitude. The central virtue that is cultivated in liberal societies is tolerance and you can learn tolerance without knowing what liberalism is. Uh, and I think that if you don't have a society in which most people are tolerant, uh, open to uh, discussion and deliberation, if they don't believe in the fundamental value of you know, freedom of speech, uh, then it's gonna be really bad if they're only a minority because you'll have a lot of other people that will say, you know, we wanna make sure that our opponents shut up and are not allowed to speak publicly and uh are driven out of positions of power and and so forth so i do think that you know you really need a consensus about liberal values and i think that actually in the united states that existed um uh it's being severely challenged right now but it it did uh, it did exist without anybody actually consciously saying yeah i'm a liberal and that's what i've signed on to
0: Frank, uh, last year we did an interview with the English intellectual historian Edmund Fawcett, two wonderful books, Conservatism and Liberalism. I'm sure you're familiar with them. I'm not sure you probably would necessarily agree with this distinction. But Fawcett said something uh, in his book that I think is very intriguing. He said, well, politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity, for the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. All these ideas need to evolve in terms of cultural, technological changes. Um, Has liberalism changed enough? Is it sufficiently flexible in the early part of the 21st century? It can't just go back to its classical roots, can it, Frank?
1: Well, I don't think anybody is arguing that you want to go back to a certain version of classical liberalism. You know, there was a version of liberalism in nineteenth-century uh, Britain that was pretty <laughs> was pretty ruthless. You know, that that it privileged markets, and um, I have a quote uh, in the book about um, uh, Trevelyan that made this remark during the Irish famine. Uh, you know that. Um, uh, this is really a way of punishing the shiftlessness of uh, the Irish uh, people who didn't take responsibility for their own lives at a time when, you know, a significant proportion of the Irish population was dying of hunger because uh, Britain continued to export grain from uh, from Ireland. Uh, so yeah, I obviously,
0: that I was intrigued. I, I, I'm not sure Mill would have agreed. Isn't that more of a? a neoliberal, I mean, there was no term neoliberalism in the 19th century, but it's the kind of thing... Well, there a, was,
1: yeah, there was a very austere belief in personal responsibility, however, and a kind of individualism that said, really, the government doesn't have any responsibility for taking care of, of people. So maybe that was, uh, you know, an early version of uh, of neoliberalism. But, but coming back to uh, this,
0: the, the, the point that, um, that Edmund Fawcett makes... I don't know whether you think Trump is or isn't a liberal. I mean, he, I'm not sure whether he has any real coherent political ideas, but um, would it be fair to say, as Fawcett suggests, that conservatives have been more innovative in it when it comes to packaging and repackaging their ideas in the context of modernity?
1: Uh, I think that they've been in many ways uh, more perceptive about some of the social consequences of modernity. So, you know, one of the big um, divisions that's appeared not just in the United States, but in Britain, in other parts of Europe, but, you know, further afield in Turkey and, uh, you know, in Russia and so forth is a basic social division between people based on their level of education, basically. So you have liberals uh, that live in big cities that tend to be well-educated. A lot of them are professionals during the COVID epidemic, you know, they were doing fine because they could get on Zoom and, you know, work from their computers. Uh, but then you have, you know, another class of people that have working class skills, which uh, have not been really adequately respected or, or uh, compensated uh, that, uh didn't have quite those privileges that lived in smaller towns and cities or out in the countryside and had more conservative uh, values and I think that uh, many liberals simply failed to recognize that this split was occurring uh, you know they kind of had a contemptuous attitude towards people that were not like themselves cosmopolitan you know open to new ideas and so forth and you know tended to write them off as you know just hopelessly nativist or racist or you know, uh, benighted because they didn't accept you know, their form of, of uh, a liberal society. And that was a huge blindness. And I think you know, Trump understood uh, that kind of person. Um, you know, those are the people that he has been dealing with through most of his career. And I think his opponents really uh, didn't recognize that there's this very powerful social force out there that could be mobilized. Uh, whether they have a solution to the, uh, you know, the grievances of that group of people is a different question. Uh, you know, uh, I sometimes get the uh, sense in American politics right now that the only agenda of these newer conservatives is to annoy liberals. You know, they don't have to actually come up with a. It's
0: not hard, though, Frank, to annoy. Yeah, you. it's not hard. <laughs> what is it about? American contemporary liberals, particularly progressive liberals, that makes them so easy to aggravate?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's partly that they've moved away from, uh, you know, from liberalism itself. They're not tolerant and tolerance remains the chief uh, virtue. And so they blame conservatives for being in intolerant when it comes to ethnic diversity, gender, you know, these sorts of issues. But they themselves, I think, are pretty politically in- intolerant. They really do tend to write off people that don't share their, you know, agenda in terms of, uh, you know, progressivism, uh, and <clears throat> that's why deviations from that uh, that kind of orthodoxy meets with such, uh, you know, contempt and and and, and spite. The other yeah, we thing need, is-
0: uh, we need Sigmund Freud, uh, Frank, to. Uh- to, to think about your word uh, deviations, I think uh, orthodoxy and Freudianism are, are kind of interesting in terms of analyzing contemporary liberalism. You've started a new group, American Purpose, which is focusing on making American liberalism and American democracy healthier. How are we going to do that, Frank? You are well a, a classic. You are unambiguously uh, both in your you know in your in your writing career and particularly in this book, liberalism and its discontents. You are someone who believes in classical liberal liberalism, although you distinguish yourself from, from, from the neoliberals. You make it clear you're not a neoliberal. How are we going to move forward here?
1: Well, uh, I think that you've got to start with the ideas. Uh, you know, I have had the sense that uh, many liberals have joined in the criticism of liberalism and they've been, you know, apologizing for it and not reminding people why uh, it's a good thing to live in a, in a liberal society. Uh, and I do think that you know politics is, in many uh, uh, instances, downstream of both culture and ideas, and unless you get the ideas right, you don't get the culture right, and if you don't get the culture right, you're not going to have the mobilization and the politics uh, that follow from it. Uh, since I am primarily somebody that writes books and deals in ideas, you know, my contribution, I'm not, I'm not an organizer. Uh, You know, I can't uh, mobilize people to go out and demonstrate in the streets or I can't legislate, but I can write books about ideas. And I think that that's one of the places uh, that you start with where you kind of push back against some of the bad ideas that are out there, but also present a positive vision of what, uh, a liberal society ought to look like. I must say that Vladimir Putin has been helping a lot in this in, in recent weeks because in a sense, he's made very vivid to people what the alternative to liberalism is. And I think it doesn't look very, uh, very pretty, but, um, but you know, many Americans don't really see that as relevant. And so I think it's important to remind them you know, why this is still a good doctrine.
0: Your last book, Before Liberalism and Its Discontents, was on identity, the demand for dignity and the politics of resentment. My sense from that book is you were quite critical of a, a, a political ideology focused exclusively on identity. Is that another cure for the current malaise of liberalism? Do we need to get beyond the politics of identity, Frank?
1: Well, I don't think that you can ever get rid of identity. I mean, all of us have multiple identities that are very uh, important to us, you know, we are proud of our you know ancestors and proud of our country and proud of you know the groups that we join and so forth. It's a very fluid category. The question is what kinds of identities are we going to uh, emphasize? And I would say that in a liberal society, you know we're going to have multiple, identities and the, the, the problem raised is when uh, certain groups begin emphasizing a fixed characteristic like race or ethnicity uh, or gender as the essential characteristic of a person that overrides you know their individual characteristics and this has been happening on both the, uh, the, the, the left and the right I think identity politics really starts on the left Uh, with people asserting that, you know, liberal individualism overlooks what marginalized groups hold in common with each other. And we ought to think of people of a pluralist society as a pluralism of groups and cultures and not of individuals. And then this is kind of set off an identity politics on the the right, where, you know, the former kind of majority uh, that thought of themselves as defining American national identity all of a sudden feels victimized because, you know, being a white person of European descent is no longer regarded as something to be proud of. Uh, And that then creates its own, you know, kinds of uh, resentments. And I think it's that form of identity politics that focuses on these fixed characteristics uh, that we can't do anything about that is, you know, what's dangerous to to a liberal democracy. Uh, But identity itself, you know, we need identity. I mean, one of the things I've argued consistently is that liberal societies have to have a national identity uh, that people can be loyal to. Uh, If they don't, there's no social cohesion, there's no communication, there's no deliberation. But that identity has to be a liberal one. It has to be compatible with liberal uh, values. And that's really, I think, one of the challenges we face, uh, you know, right now in America.
0: Yeah, you're definitely on the the same page there with and mark i know you you credit him at the beginning of your book uh his his new book uh the great experiments why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure focuses on this idea in some ways of patriotism can we have a liberal patriotism frank you have a a chapter in the book on if not patriotism um the idea of um uh, national identity. In fact, it's your penultimate chapter. It's an important chapter in the book.
1: Right. No, I think that you can. Uh, there's some examples of it. I think you know, for example, in France, after the French Revolution, you know, you had Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, uh, the slogans of the French Revolution that defined a kind of republican uh, identity that was based on the French language, on Uh, belief in those republican ideals of liberty equality fraternity uh, and was open to you know the actual diversity of people that lived uh, in France and so if you lived in Martinique or you know you're a black person coming from Senegal but became a citizen and spoke French you could participate uh, in that uh, in that French identity and you wouldn't be embarrassed by calling yourself, uh, you know, French in, in that respect. It wasn't linked to uh, race or ethnicity. And I think in the United States, we had gotten to that kind of sense of who we were as a nation in the wake of the civil rights uh, movement that finally removed the formal barriers to African-Americans being, you know, full citizens and being able to uh, participate. Uh, you know, I've always thought that, If you go to a naturalization ceremony in the united states uh, it's very different from other countries uh, other democracies because it's actually very moving you know you get all these people from iran or guatemala or korea or you know wherever and they're all together they all you know pledge allegiance to the united states and then the you know the society makes a big deal out of it there's a color guard and you know, sometimes the governor comes to welcome them as new citizens. And I think it kind of gives you a strong sense of what a liberal identity is, that we're all free Americans, we all have equal rights, the government is going to treat us uh, equally, unlike the countries from which we, uh, which we came. And so that's, you know, that's my sense of how liberal patriotism really ought to work.
0: And it depends, of course, on our agency on our determination to make that. You had an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, late last month uh, on the long arc of historical progress. You disagree with another of our guests, a frequent guest on the show, Anne Applebaum, who believes, or you at least you suggest, believes in the inevitability of human progress, in the arc of of progress, this uh, Martin Luther King uh, assumption. Uh, do you still believe, Frank, that things can get a lot worse? Can we? Oh yeah, even? no,
1: look. <laughs> they can obviously get worse. I mean, the thing about historical progress is it's very nonlinear. I mean, you just think about the early 20th century when you know you had a, a, a emergence of a liberal Europe at the end of the 19th century that was then completely undermined uh, by the rise of rabid nationalism. You know Vienna uh, at the end of the 19th century was one of the most liberal cities in the whole world. It produced Freud and Mahler and Hofmannsthal and and you know John von Neumann. Well, that that was the Hungarian wing of the of the empire. And then all of that comes crashing down with the rise of uh, of Hitler and fascism, and all of those people have to escape to the liberal United States that will welcome them uh, as uh, as immigrants uh, and tolerate them. Uh, but, you know, that was a horrible period in, in human history. Uh, we recovered from it. Um, but I think that, you know, that's the worry right now that we may be heading into another period like that of rising nationalism, rising intolerance, uh, dislike and distrust of liberal societies. And that's something we have to, you know, organize and mobilize against.
0: Frank, um, everyone, of course, knows you as the end of history man. You famously wrote that essay, I think it was in 1989, and the book, best selling book. Um, are you suggesting? I know you're not suggesting that we are at the end of history, and I, I don't think, and, and, and as you've said many times publicly, you never really said that. But are you suggesting that liberalism is the only civilized? alternative in the way we think about ourselves in society. Of course, there are other alternatives, but you seem to suggest that they're all unacceptable. Um, You, in some ways, I guess, dismiss communitarianism, um, neoliberalism. Is liberalism the only game in town for anyone who really cares about human rights and human progress?
1: Well, I, first of all, think that both neoliberalism and communitarianism are, you know, within the liberal family, uh, I think that actually I would say that I'm more towards a communitarian wing uh, than towards the pure liberal wing because I do think that, you know, what a liberal society ought to protect is our ability actually to associate and live together in uh, communities and not be these isolated, atomized uh, individuals. Uh, So I would say that that's simply a gloss on, Uh, on uh, uh, liberalism Uh, what I you know was writing about is the much more stark alternatives to liberalism whether you could get rid of either democracy via elections or the rule of law that you know protects individuals uh, in a systematic way and still have a society that is uh, you know economically prosperous that people want to live in and you know, I must say that uh, I, I I could never assert that such a society can't exist. Uh, you know, human beings are endlessly inventive, but I honestly don't see uh, a higher and better alternative. I think the only one that's out there that has any plausible claim uh, to be a, a real alternative is China, because they've done very well economically. They're stable, or they appear to be quite stable. Um, and so that is, you know, that's a, that's a challenger. I don't think that Islamic fundamentalism, I don't think Iran is Saudi Arabia are much uh, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an alternative that, that, you know, are plausible that people would actually want uh, for their societies. And so, you know, it, it remains a fact that the challengers to liberalism uh, look distinctly, uh, distinctly worse. And so, in that sense, you know, I, I haven't been convinced that the thesis is is uh, is completely wrong.
0: New York Times asks, "Where have all the liberals gone?" Not all of them are gone. Uh, Frank Fukuyama is still around. His new book, "Liberalism and Its Discontents," is just out. It's I wouldn't say classic Fukuyama because I don't know what that means, but it's certainly Fukuyama at his best. It's a short, sharp book, a reminder of the importance of liberalism. Finally, uh, Frank, how do you want to be? remembered uh, everyone remembers you for better or worse as the end of history guy uh but i assume <laughs> you don't want to be remembered as the guy who got misunderstood in your analysis of 1989 do you want to be remembered as uh a liberal in a time of illiberalism guy well that wouldn't that would be toleration
1: i think that would be a fine distinction you know uh I sometimes feel like saying, say it now and say it loud. I'm a liberal and I'm proud. And that's pretty much my position.
0: Well, that can be your music, Frank, when you put out a (laughs) a single. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Keep well, and we'll have you back on Keen On in the not-too-distant future. Francis Fukuyama, the author of Liberalism and Its Discontents. It's been an honor. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.